Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the fantasies and fallacies of anything to do with motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories including Australia's first electric vehicle how-to guide to ease confusion and Ford is working on a push bike that communicates with other vehicles. If you think politicians are getting good advice about transport projects, we have an interview that may change your mind. Professor David Hencher from the Institute of Transport and Logistics at Sydney University talks about how we assess and how we should assess new projects. We sit in a brand new Range Rover Velar with Glenn, who normally drives a 1964 EH Holden, to see his reaction to modern technology. And Brian Smith, Errol Smith and I take a quirky look at some unusual stories of the day, including the Turkmenistan president enters a car rally and, surprise, surprise, effortlessly wins. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can podcast the whole program on your favourite podcast service. Now to begin the program, let's have the news. Plugging into electric vehicle infrastructure is set to become a whole lot easier in Queensland following the release of Australia's first guide to installing electric vehicle charges for property owners, planners and developers. The guide has information on a range of building types from workplaces, tourism destinations, shopping centres through to fast and ultra-fast charging on highways. The Minister for Transport and Main Roads has said that electric vehicles in Queensland are growing and with new more affordable models entering the Australian market, EV charging infrastructure will grow in importance. Earlier this year, the Queensland government successfully completed the Queensland Electric Superhighway, which stretches from the Gold Coast to Cairns. This is the world's longest electric vehicle highway in a single state. Fast charges have been installed along the highway close to amenities, allowing motorists to charge their vehicle and have a short break during their journey. Ford Australia recently announced the launch of Second Car, a pilot program that allows eligible new Ford buyers to drive a second Ford vehicle for up to two weeks. The membership program is a global first for Ford and aims to give consumers a taste of how vehicle ownership and mobility may evolve in the future. Created and piloted in Australia, Second Car may be expanded to other markets in the future. Second Car is available to new Ford Ranger and Escape customers, with the Mustang being the first vehicle available to drive for up to two weeks. Ford's long-term goal is to expand the program so that the purchase of any new Ford vehicle will enable access to the entire Ford lineup. A fossil-free commercial transport system by 2050 is not only possible, but also financially attractive from a social perspective. That's the conclusion of a Scania-sponsored analysis, which indicates that several pathways can be pursued to phase out carbon emissions. The research covers three transport segments, long-haul, distribution and city bus operations across four countries, Sweden, Germany, China and the US. 
The report concludes that there are four key pathways that are critical to achieve fossil-free commercial transport by 2015. These are smarter logistics, electrification, biofuel and fuel cells. BMW will be the first car maker to offer wireless charging for electric vehicles. The manufacturer says it will start producing an optional inductive charging kit for the 5 Series Hybrid from July, initially offering it to customers in Germany before broadening the scope to include the UK, US, China and Japan. BMW Australia is examining overseas developments to see if the technology could eventually make its way to this part of the world. The kit is only available as a leasing option for the 530E plug-in hybrid and can wirelessly charge the battery from empty to full in around three and a half hours. Customers who choose the option receive a ground pad which looks like a newspaper-sized black mat placed on their garage floor and plugged into the mains power. Ride-sharing service Uber has cancelled its Arizonian self-driving test program in the wake of a fatal crash that killed a 49-year-old woman in March. It was the first reported self-driving car death involving a pedestrian. Uber has said it still plans to continue the program in California and Pennsylvania. However, the testing will now consist of shorter drive routes and smaller fleets, with the company aiming to be back on the road in time for the American summer. Ford has joined a number of bike industry companies to help develop artificial intelligence for bike-to-vehicle, or B2V, communications. B2V allows bikes, cars, trucks and roadway infrastructure to connect using a single cross-industry standard. A new B2V advisory board has been formed with representatives from over a dozen companies, with the intention of setting global standards which will ultimately improve road safety for cyclists. And that has been the news. If you want to build more transport infrastructure or change a policy or change an operating system, how can you evaluate if it's worth spending money on by going ahead? We have been computer modelling transport systems for a long time now. Now, no model is perfect. Are we getting better and how do we assess something in a changing world? In order to have a manageable model, we have often zeroed in on specific tasks, such as journey to work, in the morning peak period, with assumptions about the likely trips that will be generated based on residential and employment areas. We have also assumed that people make logical choices based on time, cost and distances. With these assumptions, we have then done huge refinement of these computer models, but we often take a long time to evaluate a project which has usually already been decided and committed to in advance. The Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at Sydney University has developed and run their own computer model which allows a different approach. Professor David Hensher is the founder and director of the Institute and has had a very hands-on role in developing this project. David, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure to be here, David. Now, talking about the model, you're not sort of condemning the previous ones, are you? It's just that it's an evolution that we've got to go through? I think that's right. It is an evolution, and we've been doing this stuff for over 60 years now, and it's been rather slow in coming up with what I would regard as behaviourally more appropriate ways of looking at the question 
what is the best spend in terms of infrastructure improvement or service changes to our entire system, not just roads, but public transport. So what we've been doing, uh, and if I could just tell you the motivation for doing this, because I think that's interesting, is that for, for many years, consultants were asked by government in the main to evaluate uh, two or three pre-chosen projects of which the decision was that one of them will be built or delivered in some form. Therein lies a problem. It's known as how do you actually identify the candidate set of real possibilities that might make a difference to the way in which our cities grow and provide well-being and livability, etc., that we all aspire to want to be part thereof. And so I've had some frustration for many years that instead of predetermining a few projects, and often they're the pet projects of politicians, like it will be a light rail or it'll be a heavy rail or it might be a road, why not ask a broader question, can we develop a framework in which we can throw in, in a systematic way, lots of possible projects, programs, policies that may identify other ways in which we could get a better spend from the scarce tax dollar that the pay the taxpayer essentially contributes to. In other words, there must be a better way of narrowing down the set of projects that we want to seriously evaluate than just simply what I would describe as a bit of a a favourites list that's often the case. And then what happens, the favourites list is maybe two or three projects to evaluate. Often it's the one project with two variations, like two different alignments of a road or two different alignments of a rail track, for example. And then we hire a consultant for, say, three years on a huge sum of money to do a major evaluation of the very limited set of options instead of finding a mechanism by which we can very quickly evaluate many, many possibilities to narrow down to the ones that could really make a difference on demand, on benefit and on cost. What we have done at the University of Sydney over the last 10 to 15 years is develop such a framework, which we call MetroScan. And it's called MetroScan because it's a way in which we can scan very, very quickly, literally hundreds of possible ways in which we could improve the performance of our transport system, but do it at a level of detail where it may not be necessary to do anything more than that in providing an evaluation outcome that could be used to determine whether that project is one worth supporting. Then we go into the design phase. Yeah, see, the thing about evaluating them too is that we often go through where we have blind statements of faith which direct where the process will go. Oh, public transport should be free or we should toll everything, everywhere, which is an important point. I'm not denying it, but it seems to narrow the approach. Now, you're talking about a model system that you can run very quickly. That's an important point, isn't it? So that we don't have to wait for a huge thing to get an idea, not a total solution, but an idea of where a statement may lead us rather than necessarily come at the end and say, well, yes, it's either good or bad, whatever that means. That's a very good point. We don't want to wait two years for a consultant to come out with a recommendation, which is not not a good recommendation either. Uh, The beauty of MetroScan, and we're fortunate at the University of Sydney that we have access to high-speed computers, in fact, the fastest in Australia, I'm told, is that it, once we've once we've got all our models working efficiently, if you come to us and say, what would what might be the situation if we were to build, say, a light rail between A and B, we should be able to within forty minutes, and I tell you, forty minutes, do a f- 
passenger forecasts for 30 years out and then move those forecasts into a benefit cost analysis given the costs of providing that system to come up with a benefit cost ratio where the benefits relate to the relative advantages in terms of time savings, cost savings, crowding impacts, whatever else is, is a benefit. To be able to do that very quickly and say, yeah, that one looks promising or not, let's look at it in a bit more detail, or no, that's a dud, let's not even go any further, is actually a very good proposition. Hmm. And I'm hoping, maybe after my lifetime, that one day our ministers of transport, our ministers of planning will on their desk have the capability of sitting there and playing what-if games using tools like MetroScan to get a good sense about that one has prospects, that one does not. And more importantly, politically, if you can show that something looks pretty good in terms of people supporting it, that's votes. So the important question is, David, is that when someone says, I wonder what it might look like if we did it, we could then say, well, give me a day. I can give you a bit of an idea. Might that also then spill over into public interaction? I've been to many a public meeting for information, which tends to be a presentation on what the government has already decided. Yes. One government official once described it as, we have an approach of decide and defend. We decide, and then the whole public consultation is about defending that. Yes. Whereas... Sometimes they're open-ended, but they're open-ended in the wrong way. What would you like? Oh, I'd love a train. All right. No one asks, well, how would you use it? What would you pay for it? And what can't we afford to pay if you do that? Your point earlier, here's some money. What would you like to do? If you do it there, your system might well be able to say, well, let's have a meeting and propose three things. I'll come back and tell you what it means. Yes. The important thing about the way we evaluate these is that you're evaluating them on the, the full population that live in the area. That, um, and, and although you may wish to share that with a community, which may be a community group that's got a lobbying interest, they need to understand what the community at large would respect as a possible outcome. Because there's no doubt about it that a lot of these town hall meetings, and for want of a better word, are very much government against a narrowly focused group that has a vested interest rather than the community at large. So the word community meeting is a bit of a misnomer in my view. Having been brought up in economics and planning and behavioralism, a good community is one that has some degree of representation across all segments, not just those who are able to go to a meeting, speak loud, be articulate, and win a few points. Dominant. What about the silent minority? Mm, dominant. The majority, I should say. Mm. Yeah. And so nothing wrong with that process, but we need to put it into context. And to have that as supplementary evidence from an independent source like a university to say, well, this is the position. And the beauty of our work, we can disaggregate down the results to different groups of people like the low income, the high income. We want to know whether some of these projects will benefit those who are more socially excluded than others, for example. Can I say thank you? Because I think we're moving towards having a, it sounds hackneyed, a more informed debate, but a more real debate on what's happening. And we're using modelling and, and other uh, factors involved in there, not just travel times and so on, but real personable factors involved in there so that it becomes a decision that we're involved in more than we're told about and it comes where we understand its consequences far more. absolutely agree with you, David. I'm, I'm hoping as time goes by... That, that the tools that we are developing can also be communicated effectively to the community at large so they appreciate the value of what we're doing. 
David. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. And that was Professor David Hencher, the founder and director of the Institute for Transport and Logistics Studies at Sydney University. You're listening to Overdrive. I was asked to compare a local car show the other day, which typically has a range of older vehicles on display. For comparison's sake, the Holden Equinox, the latest Subaru WRX STI, and the just-released Range Rover Velar. It's a mid-size SUV, which, if you get the higher specification model, comes with all the bells and whistles. To understand the impact of new technology, I asked Glenn, who owns a 1964 E.H. Holden, to sit in the Velar to see how he reacted to all the features of a modern car. Now, we'll start up the car and it will turn on all the technology. Now, Glenn, I want you to uh, tell me your reaction. Is it a little bit different to the E.H. Holden? Mildly. Yeah, <laughs> it's more like uh, turning on a PlayStation than starting a car. <laughs> it is a PlayStation. Of course, you have a digital screen in front of you and all the digital stuff here in the middle, of course, is a flat screen with very little controls on it. Is it overwhelming? Does Range Rover do the uni course to drive it? <laughs> well, I get the 17-year-old to tell me what it's all about. I get confused. Now, you'll note in the middle here, it has pictures of the seats so that you can follow that. Oh, look, there comes the map in front of you, which is all rather powerful. What do you think of the layout? It's not flat like an EH Holden, is it? No, it's definitely um, got a lot more gadgets in it, but it's hard to know which screen to look at. There's three, three to look at. Yeah, and so we have uh, the speedo on the left, which is digital, uh, and a, a taco on the right with the uh, map in yeah. the middle. That's pretty so, cool. They're pretty cool? Yeah, I like the, the navigation in the middle because mm. a lot of the time it's in the centre console, so you've got to look away to look at that. We're here, it's, it's in a great spot. Can we put all the windows up so we can... Uh, yeah, when we find the buttons. Yeah, and the back ones as well, okay. Uh, the probably, I don't think the EH has uh, electric windows. No, no, it doesn't even have air conditioning. <laughs> now, yours is a special, an EH special. What does that uh, mean for 1964? Well, they came out as a standard, a special, and then a premier. So it's the middle of the range uh, model. Um, not that much difference um, from the special to the standard. Just you might have got carpet instead of vinyl. <laughs> So it's not like this where it's all leather and um, all shiny bits. The uh, Holden Equinox we've got over there has the button that you can start it before you get into the car. Hang on, I'll just interrupt you there. My seat has just started massaging my back. <laughs> it says here, auto massage. Do you that, like it? That's different. That's very different. Yeah. Glenn? So, yep. Sorry, I'm distracted. I'm just finding out new things. It does have a head-up display. I just noticed yes. noticed it on the windscreen there. Mm. So, mm. yeah, there's lots lots to see and do in here. So well, it, it takes you a while to do that now, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, if you got into your EH, you would check the mirrors and the seat, and that's uh, about it. You mean you check your mirror? There's only one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And have to check one mirror. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I think you've just summed up the difference in motoring. Yeah, yeah. Well, you didn't even have to worry about seatbelts back then. Yes. So that's one less thing to check off, check off the list. Glenn, thanks very much for your time. No worries. It's been fun. And that was Glenn, who owns a 1964 EH Holden, sitting in a $130,000 or so Range Rover Velar, and discovering a number of differences. This is Overdrive across Australia. And here we are again, uh, finally at the end of the program, and I'm joined on the line by Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. And Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. And now, Brian, I know you picked this story, and I'd also like you be, to be the one to talk about it, because I can't pronounce the names. What, what's it about? <laughs> well, look, it's, a, it's uh, as you reported last week, David, it's, uh, it's a story about a, a head of state who uh, exaggerates and seeks... Uh, praise for things that he clearly doesn't do. And it's not about America's Donald Trump. It's actually about the Turkmenistan president, Gurban Guli Berdi Mahud Mahmudov. <laughs> I had trouble with it too, David. Think what I would have said today. <laughs> yeah. Look, he, he turned up at the, um, at the Hamul Azar International Rally. Just turned up. Happened to be driving a BMW rally car. Huh. And uh, decided he, he wouldn't mind a little fang. And he said, oh, well, perhaps I can have a go. Given that apparently the, the BMW sports car that he turned up in was scrutiny ready to, to, to go in the race. Huh. So uh, he was supposed to be there just to, to understand what's going on from his interior minister on preparations for the rally. Um, but when he asked if he could participate, the referee, um, with an eye on his career, immediately <laughs> gave his permission uh, saying it's a great honour for him and for sportsmen everywhere. So um, how'd he go? Well, funny you should mention that, David. He won oh. convincingly. <laughs> he he had his son Sardar, who happens to be his deputy foreign minister as well. They've, um, I believe it was all on merit. Uh, it was a exhaustive <laughs> interview process. He navigated for his father, and he actually completed the course twelve seconds ahead of a professional. Rally driver, he awarded the wow. Master of Sports certificate and the Winners' Cup, which I imagine some of the other rally participants may have been hoping to go home with. For his uh, his skills in motorsport experience and commitment, he's been invited to come again next year, and he's also uh, in in sort of um, pr uh, recognition of his skills. He's donated his racing helmet to the museum. Um, so right. this isn't a one-off for for. Um, the, the president. Sorry, uh, what was his name? Gerben Gouli. Gerben Gouli. <laughs> he's actually, uh, since he's been in charge of Turkmenistan since 2007, and he's won quite a lot of sporting and cultural events. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's well known for, he's a sort of King Jong-un style, you know, hmm. first time he plays golf, he gets uh, 18 holes in one, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> but uh, look, it's a lovely, I, I think it's lovely that the head of a, a nation just can just turn up and dominate a sport like that. Amazing. Yes. I, I'd yes. like to see them Sh in the Olympics. Sh shows he's really, they've really got the right man for the job, don't they? <laughs> he can do anything. Dad. 12 <laughs> seconds ahead of a professional driver. I reckon that would make Sarah Huckabee Sanders blush to, to, to even yes. claim that. Uh, Trump's pr press secretary. <sighs> yes. Now, the thing is, he is said to be, and I, I emphasise the word said, 
to be a talented musician and DJ, as well as a competitive cyclist and jockey. No wonder he got elected. I mean, the man's just got all the the right credentials for popularity, surely. Look, this <laughs> they, is in the they, old they, days they, where leaders really were, you know, leading the, the nation. They were the, the finest men of their nation. I, I believe he, he represents their entire armed forces as well. So it's just him. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of this story. Uh, some may remember well back the Prime Minister of Australia, Billy McMahon, he was Prime Minister, what, 69 to 72, beaten by Gough Whitlam, of course, in 72. He used to play squash, and he didn't really look very athletic, and he played with his mate regularly, and uh, an interviewer asked his mate, did Billy McMahon ever win? He said, yes, at Christmas and on his birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, apparently, apparently, all the all the people that beat um, the prime minister last year um, met with unfortunate accidents. Yes, yes, yes. I tell you what, he's he's uh, he's a little bit better than his predecessor, who'd renamed the months of the year after himself and his wife. Oh, and and his mother. So he he restored the traditional names, but he has also apparently. Uh, earlier this year, ordered the impounding of all black cars in the country's capital because uh, you know uh, white is a lucky num uh, lucky colour. So all of the dark cars had to be um, repainted at, at their uh, owner's cost in either silver or white. So he's a very balanced and and uh, <laughs> and thoughtful leader. Well, compared to some, yes. You say that's it makes a, a, a lucky. The country has large gas reserves. But much of the population, I believe, is still impoverished. And Amnesty International has accused Turkmenistan of human rights violations and restricting freedom of speech. So lucky for some might well be the point. Errol, talking of politicians. Yes, yes. Well, in a similar vein to my story last week about the stolen tractor, this time we have a man in Iceland who got drunk and decided to go on a rampage with a digger after police eventually ran him off the road which I was thinking it must be a hard thing to do to a construction vehicle that's designed to build the road. Anyway, it turns out he was not only a firefighter, but a candidate in the country's local elections, a member of the New Power Party. Uh, so apparently his new power was vodka. Um, but uh, a later meeting... Of or a diesel engine. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Apparently his party had, had a meeting and decided to throw him out because of his... Uh, his um, escapade. All right, gentlemen, lovely to talk to you as always. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. Right. See you, David. And Brian Smith and Errol Smith, and we're talking some quirky news here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, Errol Smith, David Campbell, Professor David Hensher, Glenn and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to some longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.